Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to study. We ask that your spirit will join us and enlighten us and help us uh, to grow, to uh, fulfill your purposes in our lives and to be a witness in this community. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number eight in the quarterly, The Holy Spirit and Spirituality. And the title is The Holy Spirit and the Gifts of the Spirit. And I thought I'd just ask a, a question to review very quickly. What is the difference, because last week we did fruits of the Spirit, what is the difference between fruits of the Spirit and gifts of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is more of a character-building thing, love, hope, joy, whatever. And the gift of the Spirit is something that you're given in order to advance the cause of God, to serve others. Well said. Exactly right. Gifts are abilities. Um, fruits are traits of character. That's exactly right. So with that in mind, Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit have the same author, capital A. Yet they are not the same. No one is required to manifest a gift of the Spirit, but everyone should manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Spiritual gifts do not necessarily testify to spirituality, but the fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit does. While there is only one fruit, there are many gifts, and some are greater than others. <clears throat> and I think they, they, parse that very well, and we'll come back to that theme uh, as an evidence of the Spirit in our life. The evidence of the Spirit in our life is fruit, character traits, maturity, not gifts, not abilities. The, the, so can you have the fruit of the Spirit and not have any gifts? Perhaps. It depends. We'll come to the gift question. That's a very interesting question. I, you know, we'll, we're going to go through what are the requirements to receive the gifts, and there seems to me there's two requirements. But one question I had here... It's just a word choice that could sometimes lead to misunderstanding. It's not a wrong word choice, but it's a choice that could cause us to think something that maybe is not intended. And that is, the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit have the same author. And I would have preferred, instead of the word author here, I would have preferred the word source. The same source. Because God is the source of life, all that is holy, all that is righteous, all that is good. But author can also mean source. So in that context, it's exactly right. He's the source. But author can also mean the one who inscribes or writes or determines or makes it so. So it's true that God is the source. But does that mean we're saying that we have no part in the development of the fruits and the expression of the gifts? That we don't also act a role in, in impacting how these gifts and fruits are being manifested and expressed. So let's, let's get an example. Is one of the gifts of the Spirit the gift of prophecy? And do prophets sometimes express that gift by writing scripture? True. And you know the text in Peter that no prophet, um, no scripture, no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never has its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So scripture, he's saying, was written by people who had the idea or the origin in, in God. So God is the source. But is Peter saying God is the one who wrote the scripture, the author of the scripture? Do you remember this quote from a few weeks ago, First Elected Message 21? The Bible is written by inspired men, but God is not... But it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God as a writer is not represented. God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial in the Bible. So is God the author of the Bible? Yes. Yeah, okay. So, so just so I won't get a lot of emails on this question of author, um, I, I thought I'd include this quote out of uh, CT395. It is uh, the instruction given... In the instruction given in our schools, the natural and the spiritual are to be combined. Interesting. Think that through. Do we do this? Do we combine the natural and the spiritual in our schools? Or, in fact, do we work hard to separate the natural and the spiritual? You know, Ellen White, who was one of the founders of the Adventist Church, her vision was that the, the theological seminary and the medical school would be together. The natural and the spiritual should be taught together. But what happened? Medical schools in Loma Linda, seminaries in Andrews in, in Michigan, separated by almost the whole continent. <laughs> okay, the, the natural and the spiritual to be combined. The laws obeyed by the earth, the earth. Now, what kind of laws is the earth obeying? 
Think that through. The laws obeyed by the earth reveal the fact that it is under the masterly power of an infinite God. The same principles run through the spiritual and the natural world. Hmm. Divorce God from the acquisition of knowledge and you have a lame, I love that, lame, okay, lame, one-sided education. Dead to all the saving qualities that give true power to man. The author of nature is the author of the Bible. Creation and Christianity have one God. God is revealed in nature and God is revealed in his word. In clear rays, the light shines from the sacred page, showing us the living God as represented in the laws of his government. When you hear that, do you hear what we just design laws, how things are created to work? Or do you hear rules that need to be enforced by the laws of his government? In the creation of, uh, by the laws of his government, in the creation of the world, in the heavens that he has garnished, his power is to be recognized as the only means of redeeming the world from the degrading superstitions that are so dishonoring to God and man. A lot in this one paragraph. Tons in this one paragraph. Okay? But God is the author of scripture, yes? Is he the writer of Scripture? Now, there's a difference, isn't there? And that's why I wanted to bring this out, because some people take the Bible, it was written by God. And so they take it literally, concretely, and they think there's word inspiration. In other words, this word is inspired. Words are not inspired in the Bible. The inspiration were the prophets who chose the words to convey the ideas, and the ideas are what are inspired. That's that. If words were inspired then we couldn't substitute a Hebrew and Greek word with an English word. But how about the scripture? And all scripture is given by inspiration of God. No, it doesn't say all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It says all scripture which is given by the inspiration of God. Not all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. For instance, the Apocrypha or Pseudepigrapha, uh, the Book of Mormon, uh, the, um, the Koran, these are all scriptures. Do we think they're all inspired by God? No, but all scripture inspired of God, all scripture which is inspired of God has been given for doctrine and correcting, teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. <clears throat> Go back and look, and it's where you place the is in the sentence. All scripture is inspired of God, all scripture inspired of God is given. Yeah, see, all scripture that God has inspired is given for this purpose. How do we determine what's inspired and what's not? How do we determine what's inspired or what's not? This is an excellent question. And if we use the scripture, the scripture tells us that there are three threads of evidence. Scripture, science, nature, God's divine nature is revealed in what he has made so the men are without excuse, and experience, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we test scripture with our understanding of his design laws, how reality works, and our real life experiences, all of them. So there are some things that are ruled out when you actually harmonize scripture with how God's created reality to work. Yes. I've seen this where I go to school where there's there's very spiritual people that are very out of tune with the way reality works and, and the way, you know, somebody might be dealing with drugs or this and, and the way they'll go about it is not how you would normally apply, you know, compassion or, or try to be there for that person. It's It's not a real way of doing that if you're expected to try to help them, to encourage them towards healing or... It's a lot of very spiritual people are out of tune with the way that reality actually works. And And, and Paul wrote at the end of time, there would be all these terrible things happening, having a form of godliness, but denying the power. So religious, religiosity and having religious ritual and, and commitment doesn't mean one actually has the power of God working in their life. Yeah. The red letter parts of the Bible that says are direct quotes from Jesus. Are they direct quotes? Were they were they written exactly? Did you, did did Jesus write them? No. Did Jesus write those, or did some, one of his apostles write from their recollection what they recall him saying? And that's why you will have, for instance, if you look at the Lord's Prayer, which is really kind of this is Jesus speaking. It's his prayer, right? There's actually a subtle difference between the way it's recorded by Matthew and the way it's recorded by Luke. They're not exactly word for word the same, but the actual message of both is exactly the same. Do you think there's parts of the Bible that could not be true then? Okay. When Satan said, in the day you eat, you will not surely die, true or false? That, that part is not true. You, you will die. 
So there are parts of the Bible that are not true depending on who's saying it. Okay, Satan lied there. What he's saying is not true. It's true that Satan said it, but what he said was not true. But it's true that it happened. Yes, the history is true, but what he said wasn't true. So you asked, are there parts of the Bible that are not true? It depends on what you mean by that. There's lots of lies recorded in Scripture, lots of falsehoods recorded in Scripture. When they accused Jesus of being the son of Beelzebub, were they telling the truth or were they lying? But I'm talking about, can we trust that what is written is what really happened? For the purposes for what it was written. And that's where we're getting to. Let me read the next let's quote here. But by the way, uh, there's, there's a point from this first quote that I wanted to follow up on. And the author said, the only means of redeeming the world from the degrading superstitions that are so dishonoring God um, is God's power. God's power is the only means of doing that. Okay, what does this mean? From what is God's power redeeming the world? Degrading superstitions. And what are degrading superstitions? What are they? Can you rename those? Can you give synonym for what a degrading superstition is? M- remove degrading, just superstition. What is a superstition? Belief in a lie. It's a falsehood. It's belief. And who's the father of lies? Satan. Okay? So the power of God will deliver us from degrading superstitions, meaning de- deliver us from lies. And what does it mean to degrade? To degrade us would mean to warp our minds, to harm our characters, corrupt our, 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 our individuality. That's what lies do, right? Okay? So what is then the power that redeems us from degrading superstitions? Truth and love. Truth and love. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of... Truth alone. It's important to point that out because most people hear the word power and they think energy, lightning bolts. No, that's not the power. The power of energy is not the power that frees us from degrading superstitions. It's the power that destroys lies that defreezes us from degrading superstitions. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, with that in mind, this, this brings it all, all together. Faith I Live by, page 10. The Bible points to God as its author... Yet it was written by human hands <laughs> in one sentence. Isn't that interesting? He's the author, but written by human hands. And in the varied style of the different books, it presents the characteristics of several writers. The truths revealed are all given by inspiration of God. What's, what's given by inspiration of God? The, the words written are given by inspiration of God. Is that what she says? The words chosen? Let me, let me keep going. She says the truths, which are the concepts, the ideas, okay, are revealed, are given by inspiration of God. Yet they are expressed in the words of men. The infinite one, by his Holy Spirit, has shed light into the minds and hearts of his servants. He has given dreams and visions, symbols and figures. And those to whom the, whom the truth was thus revealed have themselves embodied the thought in human language. Who put it in human language? God put it in human language or the, the human being? The human being chose the language, okay? Keep going, next paragraph. The Lord speaks to human beings in imperfect speech in order that the degenerate senses, the dull earthly perception of earthly beings may comprehend his words. Thus is shown God's condescension. He meets fallen human beings where they are. The Bible, perfect as it is in its simplicity, does not answer to the great ideas of God. For infinite ideas cannot be perfectly embodied in finite vehicles of thought. It's a faith I live by, page 10. Instead of the expressions of the Bible being exaggerated, as many people suppose, the strong expressions break down before the magnificence of the thought, though the penman selected the most expressive language through which to convey the truths of higher education. God designed the Bible to be a lesson book to all mankind in childhood, youth, and manhood, and to be studied through all time. He gave his word to men as a revelation of himself. It is the medium of communication between God and man. Does that clear up the questions we're trying to parse here? Scripture's inspired? I think the Bible's inspired. How was it inspired? By inspiring the people who had biblical... In, uh, divine insight and wisdom into the cosmic realities of things, but then they chose what words to use to express those ideas. God didn't dictate to them. And thus the words are not inspired, the truths are inspired. And thus you can express a truth with more than one word. Anybody in here ever, besides me as an author, 
I can tell you, when I submit my manuscript to the editor, it comes back and many times they will take the sentences and they will suggest another way to say the same thing. And I look at that and sometimes it's actually better. Wow, that actually gets the idea, the truth, the concept across more efficiently than what I did. Sometimes they change it and they actually give a different meaning than I was intending. So I say, no, I can't. No, that's, that's, a, that's a different meaning. That's not what I'm trying to say. Okay, But sometimes you can rephrase something and it says the same thing with just different words. Yes? Okay, And so that's why we permit translation. That's why you can take a Greek and a Hebrew Bible and you can translate it into English. You understand... If you don't believe, if you believe words are inspired and we can't substitute one word for another, then you should not have any confidence in an English Bible because the prophets did not write in English. All those words are substitution of Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic words. Everybody get me on that? Okay. So, but we have confidence in it because we know those words aren't special. It's the ideas and truths and we want to stay consistent with the truth being conveyed in those words. Okay. So, do we see God as the author? but not the writer of the Bible. Would this, yes, would this mean then when it comes to the fruits and gifts in our life that he's the author, but not the writer? Would that apply there? In other words, he gives us the wisdom, the insight, the new traits of character, the new motives, but we choose how we express it. For instance, David had this in his heart uh, to love God, and he said, I want to build a temple for you. Well, God in that case said, you can't build it, but David said, well, I can at least collect all the stuff. And that was David's choice to go out and gather all the materials together that his son would build. God didn't direct him to do that, but that was a manifestation of a a transformed heart and a fruit of wanting to give something back in love. And if you think about your love relationships, God is a source of love, but... And you might be inspired by your significant other with love too. Of course, you know how love works. You get more love as they love you. But as you give that love back because that person's inspired you because they've loved you, do you put your own unique expression on that love? Or do you only express your love to them if you checked with them first and got the checklist on how they want it expressed? See, that diminishes love, doesn't it? Now, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. So is the fruit of the Spirit... The, the fruit of the Spirit, self-control, from the Spirit or from the self? The accommodation. You know, it's a trick question, right? It's from the Spirit, but then how is it self-control? It's not Holy Spirit control. How is it self-control? Understanding design law clears it all up. What's our natural condition? Born into this world. We're born in sin, conceived iniquity. So our natural heart is in harmony with God or enmity to God. So our natural heart is filled with love and grace and, and peace. Or our natural heart is filled with fear and insecurity and selfishness. Okay? So we are slaves to fear and security and selfishness, our natural state. And therefore, we have no ability to actually master ourselves. We are mastered by our fears and insecurity until the Holy Spirit comes and takes what Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us and sets us free in love, gives us new motives. And once he heals what's broken in us, then the Spirit sets us free and we are now self-governed. He fixes the brokenness. And then that enables us to be self-governed. So it is a gift that we then exercise. Wisdom was a gift given to Solomon, but who exercised that gift? Strength was a gift given to Samson, but who exercised the gift? We will be given the gift as we participate in God's plan of self-governance. But then we exercise that gift. It's the only way love works. Because if we were, and, and by the way, this, if you think about some different, maybe when we were younger in our spiritual journey, more of the, 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 the child in Christ, we sometimes can be afraid of making mistakes. And, and we've actually made some and we feel bad about it and we don't want to do it anymore. And so we can pray, Lord, you take control. I don't want to be in control anymore. I keep messing up. You take charge. Take, take, and, and maybe you've read some, some books, some Christian authors that, that use the metaphor of, of a, driving a car and that when we sit in the passenger seat and the Lord's in the driver's seat, things go well, but as soon as we knock him out of the driver's seat and we take charge and drive, we always wreck. You've seen, you remember these metaphors? Okay, so we want him to be in charge and him to drive. That's actually not biblical. God wants you to be in charge of your life in a cooperative love relation with him that he heals and fixes the brokenness inside so you're capable of making free will choices in harmony with his. And if you read some of Ellen White's other comments, she talks about when, when he has his way in our life, we will actually be carrying out the dictates of our own heart and fulfilling his will because our heart desires change. 
The second paragraph says the gifts of the Spirit are given so that we can serve others and build up the body of Christ, his church. What does it mean to build up the church? Is it talking about gaining better properties, more better sound equipment, uh, you know, better better carpet, a, a better pipe organ? With, you know, you know, I mean, is, is that what it's talking about by building up the church, getting increasing your tithe base? What, what does it mean by? It means teaching the people or helping the people to learn how to have that love relationship with God more. It's a service. Yes, all those other things like buildings and sound equipment and all that kind of stuff are only tools that we can use effectively to build up the church. But they don't build the church up. No, that's not building up the church by getting more of that stuff. So what does it mean to build up the church? Well, I thought given the intense energy of many Christians in politics today and the intense friction between Islam and other religions in the world today, including Christianity, I thought this quote was fairly interesting. I came across in Great Controversy, page 297. It says, the regulation adopted by the early colonists, colonists in America, so this is the context, early colonists in America, the regulation adopted by early colonists of permitting only members of the church to vote or to hold office in civil government led to a most pernicious result. This measure had been accepted as a means of preserving the purity of the state, but it resulted in the corruption of the church. A, prof- a profess- profession of religion being the condition of suffrage and office holding, in other words, political correctness, so you can actually hold office, it's required, and be able to vote. Many actuated solely by motives of worldly policy united with the church without a change of heart. Thus the churches came to consist to a considerable extent of unconverted persons. And even in the ministry were those who not only held errors of doctrine, but who were ignorant of the renewing power of the Holy Spirit. Thus again was demonstrated the evil results so often witnessed in history of the church from the days of Constantine to the present of attempting to build up the church by aid of the state, of appealing to the secular power in support of the gospel of him who declared my kingdom is not of this world. The union of church with state, with the, the union of the church with the state, be the degree ever so slight, while it may appear to bring the world nearer to the church, does in reality bring the church nearer to the world. Any thoughts about that? I thought that was quite timely for me to stumble across this week. If you've been watching what's going on in our nation the last few weeks. Can we build up the church by seeking to get the right politicians elected or the right judges on the Supreme Court? Are there many Christians pursuing this path? Yeah, this is their whole, I mean, I'm telling you, it's primary for many. So how do we build up the church? This is uh, My Life Today, 220. If you walk in the light, you can never be, you can, let me start that over. If you walk in the light, you can everyone be light bearers to the world. Do not seek to accomplish some great work and neglect the little opportunities close at hand. We can do very much by exemplifying truth in our daily life. The influence which we may thus exert cannot be easily withstood. Men may combat and defy our logic. They may resist our appeals, but a life of holy purpose of disinterested love in their behalf is an argument in favor of the truth that they cannot gainsay. Far more can be accomplished by humble, devoted, virtuous lives than can be effected by preaching when a godly example is lacking. You can labor to build up the church to encourage your brethren and to make the social meetings interesting, and you can let your prayers go out like sharp sickles in the labors of, of the field. And then one sentence out of Second Testimony two, uh, 6.26. You cannot build up the church until you are a transformed person. So what does it mean to build up the church? How do we build up the church? What do you hear? Any ideas? We need to understand what the church is built up. Okay, what, what is the material of the church? What is the church constructed out of? People. All right, so maybe we should say, how do we build up people? How do we build up people? You can't build other people to you yourself are built, which means having that relationship with God on a daily basis where you want to serve Him by teaching others about His love. So there's a real principle here. I will tell you, most of you would waste your time and energy if you sought to get music lessons from me. <laughs> because I play no instruments. Okay, that would be, I, I, I can't teach what I don't know. Okay? We can't teach the truth about Jesus Christ 
and his plan to heal and save if we don't participate in that first. Yes? I think it's very interesting that Jesus uses uh, the parables and, and the metaphors of, of being blind and of not being able to see and the blind lead the blind into a ditch. It's, it's quite literally you not being able to see what's wrong and you complete, you know, you being oblivious to it and not, not even knowing that it's there. You know, how, how do you tell a person that's been blind their whole life what stars look like? When, how do you convey that message to them when they literally have no concept of color, no concept of shape or form? Sure. They're quite literally blind. So, you know. And, 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 have you, and, and Jesus dealt with people like this all the time. The blind leading the blind. Seeing though they do not see. Hearing though they do not hear. I personally have had experience with this. And hopefully some of you had. If you've actually tried to share truths with people on a significant enough basis, a number of times, you will run into people who are blind and they cannot see the truth in front of them. They are so blinded by their own constructs, their own preconceived ideas that the truth doesn't penetrate. And the thing is, is but they, they're, we're born that way. We're born that way. Where it's not like we're blind. We're oh, I would, at one time I saw. I, I don't think we are. I don't think we are. I don't think most people were born blind. I think most people are born blank. Blank. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because uh, when, you, when a baby comes into the world, the baby doesn't know anything. It's a blank. It, it doesn't have a language. It doesn't know up. It doesn't know down. It doesn't know the grass is green, the sky is blue. It doesn't know anything. All this will be assimilated by the environment in which the child grows up in. And as they assimilate this information, it starts forming constructs, schemas, um, filters, lenses, through which other data will then be filtered and processed through. And it's those things that will either put blinders on or not put blinders on. I think most people do have capacity for learning and understanding, or else they couldn't even learn a language. Okay? Sure. Yeah. So I don't think most of us are born um, completely blind. I think the blinders come from uh, unhealthy learning and, and belief systems that blind us. I think perhaps this point is that we, have, we still have that degraded nature. That's true. That's true. That makes but if, more difficult. But if the nature blinded us, then we couldn't learn. We'd be blind. We'd all be born blind, and there's no light that could penetrate any heart or mind. Correct. Well, and I guess you're drawing the difference between mm-hmm. knowledge and understanding. And I, what I'm trying to, I guess, point to is the, the understanding of, of reality as it is. Because, yes, you can know, you can have, assimilate knowledge, you can understand things, but the, the way things, your beliefs on the, on the truth, on the way things are actually constructed is a big difference. That's right. You know, and that's that's what I guess I'm saying is there are a lot of people that learn and they do assimilate and they do find knowledge, but their grasp of the truth and, and the reality of the way things actually work is what gives you power, what gives you strength. And that before before they actually know that they stumble upon it or not stumble upon it, but find out, oh, this is truth. This is you know, gravity goes down. This is truth. Once they find that, then they're that's like an anchor. You know, that's a cornerstone. You're able to build around that because my my experience in doing what i do is that most people who find themselves reluctant or struggling to see new light it's because on some level they don't want to or at least at some point in their life they didn't want to they may have got to the point they no longer can uh, that they just have persisted so long into into self-deception that they've lost the ability to see new truth that's possible but but that process is because on some level they don't want truth because the truth whatever it is there and it might not be spiritual truth it may be truth about a relationship maybe truth about uh some aspect of their own history but on some level they're afraid of the truth they're afraid the truth will be uncomfortable unpleasant will hurt them will cause require them to make some change in themselves that they don't want to make a change in and thus they avoid the truth and this is what jesus said those who are in the darkness don't want to come in the light lest their evil deeds be exposed meaning not that they'll be condemned and crushed but that they will have to make changes They'll have to give up certain things, and they don't want to give up certain things. So most of the time, people who are blind, uh, spiritually blind, in some way, they have self-chosen that path, persisting in in that way. Um, In the lesson, I'm going to jump down a little bit. Um, Green section asks at the bottom, why is love so central to all that we do as Christians? Why is love? And if you notice in the First Corinthians, uh, where the spiritual gifts are, spiritual gifts are listed in chapter 12. What comes in chapter 13? And what comes in chapter 14? A whole chapter basically on speaking in tongues, one of the gifts. Okay? So right in there, right in the middle, there is love happening here. And Paul is basically saying that all these gifts are great, but there is a more excellent way. And the more excellent way than the gifts is 
love. Now, why is love the more excellent way? What's the reason for that? There's a reason, concrete, objective, measurable, definable reason for that. Love is not selfish. That is what love is. That's right. And why is that the more excellent way? Because that is the principle upon which life is. That's the only path for eternal life. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13 out of the remedy and see if that idea comes through. If I'm gifted to speak the language of people and angels, but do not have God's love in my heart, I'm only making meaningless noise because I remain terminal and dying. If I'm gifted with prophetic insight and understand all mysteries and knowledge, And if I am trusted to move mountains but do not have God's love in my heart, I am a fraud because I'm still dying in sin and am nothing at all. If I give away all my possessions to the poor and die as a martyr tied to a burning stake but don't have God's love in my heart, I am still unhealed and have gained nothing. Love is the principle upon which life and health are built to operate. And when active and intelligent beings, love is patient and kind. Love gives in order to bless others and does not envy, boast, or promote self. Love is not intrusive, rude, selfish, irritable, or hot-tempered. And love doesn't hold grudges or keep a record of wrongs. Love takes no pleasure in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always heals, always restores, builds up, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. Love originates in God and therefore will never stop and never fail. But one day prophecies will cease, talking will be paused, and human knowledge will fade. We are finite, knowing just a part of all truth. And prophecy is just a piece of a greater whole. But when God restores the universe to his perfect design of love, all imperfections will disappear. When I was a child, I talked like a child, bragging about myself. I thought like a child, focusing on the do's and the don'ts, and reasoned like a child. But when I grew up, I embraced God's kingdom of love and put the childish ways behind me. Our minds are so darkened by selfishness that we see God's kingdom poorly, like a reflection in a cloudy mirror. But when he returns, we shall see perfectly face to face. Right now, I know only part of God's reality. Then I will have all questions answered and fully know the truth, just as God fully knows me. So these three endure, trust, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Thoughts about that? Yes. So really, all the spiritual gifts that we've been given are worthless unless we have the fruit of the spirit of love. This, this is the point, worthless. So the lesson actually used that word worthless too. And I actually, I, I, in eternal reality, you're correct. Eternal, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? In eternal reality, you are correct. It's worthless. And that's right. However, in our world today, and seeing with a worldly lens, which most people still see through, the gifts of the Spirit have a worth. So I say, without the fruits of the Spirit, the gifts are pointless. There's no point to them if you don't have a transfer. But they have worth. For instance, the gift of languages. You can do treaties and contracts and, and negotiate with the gift of languages. The, the um, gift of prophecy, lots of cults. And lots of people, um, fortune tellers and stuff, uh, really value that gift. They make money off that gift, uh, if, even if it's a false gift. Okay, So there is a worth in a worldly sense, but in an eternal sense, you're right. There's no worth without the, without the fruits. Monday's lesson, first paragraph. It is not we who decide what gifts we to have. The Greek word for the gifts of the Spirit is charismata. They are gifts of grace, distributed and given by God himself. We do not earn them by our status, our position, our honor, our education, or our spiritual performance. They are gifts freely given out uh, of love so that we can fulfill the task God has assigned to us. Do we all agree that the gifts are not earned? See, to earn something means that it's compensation, reward, pay, something owed to us for the work that we have done. That's what it means to earn something, right? Okay, And, of course, the the gifts of the Spirit are not owed to us. We do not earn them. However, however, does that mean our maturity, or does our maturity have anything to do with whether we receive the gifts? Does our spiritual maturity have anything to do with receiving gifts? Yes or no? And does our maturity have anything to do with our choices, our works? 
So while we do not earn as in to be owed, we do have, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, choices to make to apply spiritual truths to our life to grow and mature, which puts us in a position to be equipped with character traits, fruits, to receive the gifts. Will a parent give a brand new car and the keys to a 12-year-old child? Why not? Consider all the gifts that we withhold from our children, not because we are selfish, but because we determine, another word, we judge, judgment, we judge that they are not mature enough to handle the gift and would harm themselves and others if we gave it to them. Spiritual gifts. Do you think God will pour his spirit out? Latter rain, spirit, empowering people to go out and tell lies about him. We have to have a certain level of spiritual maturity before we can receive the gifts, it seems to me. So one factor in why we may or may not have received gifts is not that necessarily we're unconverted. We may be converted, but we may be like Paul writes in Hebrews 5, still on milk, not on meat, and he's waiting for us to grow up so that he can give the gift. It's like you're a child, but you're 12. Why don't I have car keys yet? Because you're not ready. You can't handle it yet. So maybe there's some maturing to do in our spiritual journey. One reason we may not experience significant gifts yet. Second reason, though, and I'm going to read this out of 8 Testament 247. God has in store love, joy, peace, glorious triumph for all who serve him in spirit and in truth. His commandment-keeping people are to stand constantly in readiness to serve. They are to receive increased grace and power and increased knowledge in the Holy Spirit's working. But many are not ready to receive the precious gifts of of the Spirit, which God is waiting to bestow on them. They are not reaching higher and still higher for power from above and through the, uh, that through the gifts will be bestowed. In other words, they're not ready. That's the reason we just, we just, uh, and I had to include that in because I didn't want people to just rest on what I said. Or they don't want to have it. That's right. Okay. They don't have to go to, they don't have to work to do something. Oh, so there's another attitude. That, that would be spiritual maturity too, though, wouldn't it? Because she's, she's exactly right. Some people don't want it because they don't want the responsibility because somebody wouldn't want the gift of teaching because they may have to come up here and teach, right? <laughs> Oh, wait. <laughs> oh, uh, for those who just don't get that, we had a little conversation up before class. <laughs> because they might have to come out and teach if you get the gift, and we wouldn't want to put somebody in that position, so we don't want that gift. Another gift, please. I'll pass that. Right, next grab bag. <laughs> that was good. Um, but, but there's another reason, too, and here's the other reason. One factor is that our own hard attitudes, our maturity, but... Will God give gifts that are not needed by the person or for his purposes? In other words, we all speak English. Am I going to get the gift of tongues? Do I need the gift of tongues in this room? It's not needed, is it? Does he give gifts that, have, that the, that the per- person has no need of and his purpose doesn't require to, it to be fulfilled? Does he give those gifts? Typically, I don't think so. So there's two elements here, our own maturity and the need, the purpose. What's, what's, what's happening here? Is it, is it necessary? I don't know whether I'm thinking about this too literally, but thinking about the gift of tongues, like the example you just gave, you know, if somebody, I guess there's somebody who's grown up in a home with multiple languages, that there's tendencies to have, it's not like, oh, it's not needed, or at this point in time it may be needed. I don't doubt that spiritual, that God could do that. I'm saying... In terms of I, meaning, giving your ability to learn languages more easily. You know, I've heard I've heard you know stories of they needed a praise team song in some church, uh, but the member played the piano and nobody was there. And it was a little girl who was practicing, and she improved tremendously over the course of you know six months. And everybody was amazed by that. And it was work of God. Something a very young girl. Well, I couldn't doubt that could happen with you know tongues and with speaking. But I guess the way I'm thinking about it is. Wouldn't God also, would he not route a person that, you know, this person has lived in a, you know, a life, lived at home with multiple languages. Oh, look, a circumstance changed where now you have to move to an area where. So, so I, I think we're confusing something here. Abilities versus gifts. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the day of Pentecost, when they spoke in tongues, 
the apostles were speaking one single language. Aramaic is what they were probably speaking. But if you read the description in Acts, everybody heard in their own language. So he wasn't speaking out of his mouth seven languages simultaneously in some type of stereo system. He was speaking a single language. But everybody heard in their own language. The Holy Spirit was translating. The Holy Spirit was translating. This specifically was designed to undo what happened at the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, people were hardening their hearts against God. They were unifying as a species to build their own way into heaven. And God sent confusing languages so that the whole human race could not unite in one group again against him. Okay, So it slowed the spread of lies of the devils, what the language problem did. The gift of tongues broke that barrier down, allowing the gospel truth to spread much more quickly back into all the different culture groups so the gospel message should go to the world faster. And this was what the real gift was. There's a lot of confusion when we think it's simply the ability to speak multiple languages. I don't think that's what the gift is. So, um, so in the second paragraph in, let's see, what day are we in now? Monday's lesson. Thank you. Second paragraph, it says, Paul says that the grace of Christ secured the right to give us gifts. What do you understand that thing? The grace of Christ secured the right to give us gifts? The right? What is that? What do you, what do you hear that to mean? Uh, uh, that he had to earn something? Yeah. From whom was he securing this right? Who held the right if God didn't hold it? If Christ and the Father does not hold the right to give us gifts, who holds the right? From whom was Christ securing it? I mean, this opens up a whole can of worms for me. It also implies that uh, the the gifts were not available until he died first. Yeah. Does the Bible actually teach this idea, or is this another example where the human law lens has infected Christian thought and created an idea that's actually not part of God's kingdom? It's using for this idea, it's referencing Ephesians 4.7. That's the reference for this idea to secure the right. It's the reference given next to that sentence. Well, let's look at Ephesians 4.7. Somebody look that up for us. But for each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Do you hear anything about a right to do it? Or just a fact that, that Christ's gift, grace was given through what he's done? I, I don't hear anything about a right. That by Christ's death, he earns the right to give us gifts. Do you see a problem with that kind of language? This, this, this is a common thing in many circles within Christianity, that when, when man sinned, Satan now had legal rights to planet Earth. He's now the, the legal ruler, and Jesus had to come and legally do something to take the rights back. It's all, it's all a lie. It's not true. Satan is the father of lies. But there's no idea of securing rights. Let me ask you this. Christ, who is our creator, has he, or has he not, as our creator, always had the right to love us? And that's what the grace is. This is act of love. This is act of self-sacrifice. He did not think quality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself in the form of a servant. Has Christ not had the right to pour his love upon us? That's what he's been doing to deliver us, to save us. Okay? This idea of earning a right, it's, it, it just rubbed me the wrong way. The third paragraph, and if there's some way I'm, I'm not, if some way you're hearing it that I'm missing, then, then point it out to me. Yeah. That we um, we give him the right to give it to us by our choice for love and our choice for relationship. Um, we he can give us a gift because we enter into relationship with him. There's no question the law of liberty plays in whether he he's free to give it. We're free to accept it. We're free to reject it. But I don't understand this idea then of the grace of Christ secured the right secured the right to give us gifts, secured the right, made it possible, uh, opened the avenue that the gifts could reach us. Those are different statements to me. Removed the obstacle, which was our fear and our insecurity and the lies that we believed about him so that we would participate in his grace. All those things make sense to me, but secured the right. That, 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 that sounds very legal to me. Yeah. So, There's a preacher down in South Carolina up north and he come down to order breakfast this is years ago and he ordered two eggs and so and so and so he come and he had a bunch of stuff white stuff over there and he said what is this and he said grit 
I didn't order grits. They come with your breakfast. The grace comes with your knowledge that Christ is your Savior. It's a, it, it was a longer story than that, but you get it, grace and grits. Grace and grits go together, don't they? There you go. I like it. Yep. So that means the people up north get no grace because they got no grits. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. The lesson talks again about um, the Holy Spirit being the, the, the one who chooses what gifts. I mean, it talks now about the difference between talents and gifts. Maybe we should read that paragraph, see what you think about this. Um, innate ability, as such, is not a spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts are not the same as natural talents that a person might have developed through intense education. Many non-Christians are blessed with such providential talent. While every good thing and perfect gift is ultimately from God, God has decided to equip his believers with special gifts in order to bless the lives of of Christians and build up his church. How can you tell the difference between a gift and an innate talent? And does it matter? Does it matter? Well, this is out of Christ's Object Lesson 328, speaking of the parable of the talents. It says, the special gifts of the Spirit, the special gifts of the Spirit, are not the only talents represented in the parable. It includes all gifts and endowments, whether original or acquired, natural or spiritual. All are to be employed in Christ's service. In becoming his disciples, we surrender ourselves to him with all that we are and have. These gifts he returns to us purified and ennobled to be used for his glory and the blessing of our fellow men. So, does it really matter? If you have a talent, you have an ability. If you surrender yourself to God, he will enable you, ennoble you, purify you, and equip you. Whether you've got it from genetics or you got it as a special endowment, it doesn't really matter. Are you using it for his kingdom and to bless others? That's the point, isn't it? But, but what's the danger of making this distinction? I've been gifted. The Holy Spirit has given me a special gift, which now I can step up one step above the rest of you who haven't had that gift. I've been found special. Isn't this the danger, the spiritual narcissism? If we make this distinction between somebody who's gifted and somebody who's talented. I'm so humble. I'm so humble, yeah. And I'm proud of it. (laughs) So the learning points are basically the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who distributes the gifts according to uh, wisdom, his wisdom and will. Since uh, he loves us and knows what's best, and how we can serve him most efficiently. We do not need to be envious of others and their gifts. To envy another's gift is a sign of ingratitude toward God and of doubting his wisdom. So learning points when I think this paragraph are the Holy Spirit determines who is gifted with a special gift and what that gift will be. It is a false conclusion to think that one special gift is evidence of the working of the Spirit. In other words, one special gift. And if you don't have that gift, then there's no Spirit working in your life. You've got to have that gift as proof. That's a false conclusion. Okay? Gifts themselves are not the primary evidence of the working of the Spirit in the life. The fruits of the Spirit are the evidence of the Spirit working in the life, not the gifts. Gifts are only given when necessary for the advancement of God's cause, but fruits are always the result of the working of the Spirit. Always, always, always. No, And there's no need to be envious of someone else's gifting because rightly understood, if you actually understood reality correctly, You would not want the other person's life, circumstances, history, struggles, burdens, pains, and gifts. Their gifts are on that person for because they have a unique space in time and history. And their unique experiences have brought them to the point where those gifts will be beneficial. And you wouldn't want to trade your life for their life if you could actually know it all and experience it all. Yes? Don't rights exist because of imposed laws? Wouldn't rights become responsibilities under design laws? See, it depends on how you define the word right. The word right has, I think, like 300 different potential meanings. And we could spend all afternoon parsing that. For instance, do we have a legal right? Do we have a moral right? Is it, is it right? Is it wrong? Do we have a constitutional right? Do we have a human right? Do we have... I mean, the word right has so many potential meanings. In this particular case, the way I read it, secured the right made it sound like that right didn't already exist. It was something that only existed because of what he did. 
Um, and, and I'm not sure that's the case. Uh, do we have innate inalienable rights, as our Constitution says? Are there inalienable rights we have as human beings that cannot be abrogated? Um, the light, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and so forth. Uh, so it depends on which lens you're looking through, how you're defining the term in that context. I think the argument there has some merit and can be made, but it's not an exclusive argument. I think it could go several different pathways. Tuesday's lesson. Uh, first paragraph makes the point that spiritual gifts are for the service and building up the church. And then it says, in the second paragraph, it says this, it's a tragedy when God's gifts, which are supposed to foster unity in the church, are misused so that only certain individuals are elevated. This fosters disunity and gives way to divisiveness. Do you agree that when, when somebody is gifted and we elevate them above others, that this fosters disunity. Would you agree? That's what happened between Lucifer and Jesus. Would this include elevating Ellen White? Has she been elevated? It would. Has Ellen White been elevated in this church? Hmm. Does it cause divisiveness? What should be elevated? The messenger or the message? The only reason she's elevated is because of a message. If she didn't have the message, she wouldn't be elevated. Whoa, now. Is there a difference between elevating the message and elevating the messenger? Think carefully. Which should be elevated, the health care provider or the antidote, the remedy? The remedy. But it wouldn't have the remedy if you didn't have the person giving it. Really? Well, if Ellen G. White didn't write the books and you didn't have them, how could you elevate the books? She, she was the third called. Two others were called before her to write the books. They chose not to. Okay, so it wasn't about Ellen White. It was about the messenger. I mean, the message, not the messenger. Yeah, so do we elevate her? I think we do. Okay, so the message is the message about God, his character of love, and the antidote is Jesus Christ. That's what's elevated. So we read the same problem existed in Paul's day. We do not value Peter or Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Ellen White or Tim Jennings. We don't elevate them. They all preached Jesus. Remember, Paul's writing the Corinthians and telling them this. Some of you value Apollos. Some of you value Cephas. Some of you say, well, I'm glad I didn't baptize but, but one of you or two of you or one family of you because then you all think you're baptizing to Paul. You're not baptizing to Paul. You're not baptizing to Peter. You're not baptizing. You're baptizing to Jesus. We elevate Jesus. That's the only one that's worth elevating. But sometimes people can be elevated, and we have to resist that, right? I think the underlying root that allows elevation to occur like this, the underlying root, is operating on human-imposed law constructs, level four and below thinking. Why? Because people at level four, when you're at level four thinking, think about your kids, level four thinking, they always look for some authority. They, they'll argue amongst themselves, I think that's this way, I think that's that way, that's Orion, isn't that Orion? Uh, okay, mom, who's right? Is that Orion or is that... And they're looking for a ruling authority to make a ruling. Mom, referee, umpire, judge, priest, pastor, pope, some Ellen White, I got an Ellen White quote, I'm right, I've ruled. This is what they're looking for, this is level four, this is childish. And that's why they get elevated, because they're looking for someone to hold the authority. But the power of God is the power of truth and love. Truth is authoritative. Truth is authoritative. And that's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, through, through me because I'm the embodiment, the living embodiment of God's character, methods, law, living law. He lived it all out. When we realize it's all about healing, about restoration, about recreation to Christ-likeness, then we realize those with the gifts have more responsibilities to carry the remedy and to work for the healing of souls. The gifting is not for elevating or exalting, an individual, but for equipping them to do more work in God's kingdom. There's a very thin line between glorifying God and glorifying yourself. Uh, would it be okay for me to teach stuff from your books without giving you credit? Absolutely. See, the, she said, would it be okay to teach stuff from my books without giving me credit? Teaching, it wouldn't be okay to quote it. 
And then because it's, 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 if you're going to quote it in something, you have to reference it. Yes. Yeah, if, you have to, if you're going to quote it out of a book, you've got to give the reference for it, whatever that source is. But if you're, just, if, if you're actually quoting verbatim. If you're just giving the ideas and the concepts, though, in your own words, in your own language, then truth is not copyrightable. Okay? So you take and take those, and I tell people, you should not go, well, Tim Jennings says, that's the, that's the worst thing to do. You understand the truths for what they are, and then you teach those truths for what they are. Which is more powerful, teaching somebody you know, why it's dangerous to have light matches around gasoline because your professor said so, or because you understand why it's dangerous? <laughs> Which is better? My professor said, I have no idea why, but they said don't do it. And then regarding divisions, Colossians two thirteen through 17, is regarding divisions in the church. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or in regard to religious festivals or new moons or celebrations or a Sabbath day, these are a shadow of the things to come, the reality of is found in Christ. What, what's the point here? What was nailed to the cross? Something that stood opposed to us and against us was nailed to the cross. What was against us? Something that was causing division, causing people to judge one another. Don't judge one another. We're being judgmental. We're judging this and that, and that's causing division. We're fracturing because we're saying, you're wrong, and this is right, and this is the way to do that, you shouldn't do this. Divisions happening because we're being judgmental. Why? Because something is causing us to be judgmental. What is it that's causing us to be judgmental? Is the way this should read like this? Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by anything you eat, drink, or regard to religious festival, new moon, celebration, but please do judge people in regard to the weekly Sabbath. Is that what Paul's trying to say here? That the weekly Sabbath is exempted and we should judge people based on that. You've got the mark of the beast? You've got the seal of God? We should judge. This causes division. Is the point about the rituals, the commandments, or is the point about doing away with judgmentalism? The thing that causes division. Does the Sabbath cause division, or does the judgmental attitude about people, from people, cause the division? And what causes the judgmental attitude? Again, believing God's law functions like human law. That's what causes it. We look at the rules, we make lists of things to do and don't do. This is out of Thoughts of Mount of Blessing 123. The effort to earn salvation by one's work inevitably leads men to pile up human exactions as a barrier against sin. For seeing that they fail to keep the law, they will devise rules and regulations of their own to force themselves to obey. All this turns the mind away from God to self. His love dies out of the heart and with it perishes love for fellow man. Notice, what does? We have a law, and so we know the Sabbath is part of the commandments, and so what do we do? We, we need to have rules now. And all these things are the things you can and can't do on the Sabbath. We pile up our rules to make sure that we keep the Sabbath, and all this turns the heart away from God and kills love in the heart. A system of human inventions with its multitudinal exactions will lead its advocates to judge all who come short of the prescribed human standard. The atmosphere is of selfish and narrow criticism stifles the noble and generous emotions and causes men to become self-centered judges and petty spies. Spying on others who aren't keeping the rules. Just imagine if you were on that general conference committee who had to find out whether Titus was circumcised or not. Well, hey, they signed up. Hey, we had to find out. Yeah, petty spy. Okay? I mean, see, this is the point. Pettiness. How many we, how, how, how are we doing this? When we go back to the design law, it all resolves itself. It all resolves itself. And so I'm going to read, and we'll close with this. Um, Colossians 2, 13 through 17. What is against us, by the way? What was nailed to the cross, in my view? The thing that caused the division? The fracturing? Our selfish, carnal nature, our fear and security was nailed to the cross. That's what was nailed. The, the, the Old Testament rituals and all that ceremony stuff, that was never against us. It was all designed as a teaching. It'll teach us the good news about Christ, the gospel, to heal us. It was always for us. Okay? What was against us was our own nature and selfish interpretation. So from the remedy, um, when your condition was terminal, 
When selfishness reigned unchecked in your minds and when your hearts were tied to the destructive cravings and practices of the world, God intervened and brought you the life-giving remedy, Jesus Christ. He reclaimed you from your terminal condition, nullifying the pathology report that certified you as dead in sin. He made it clear that the written code with its regulations was only a diagnostic instrument designed to expose our terminal state and teach us the need for a true cure, and he nailed it to the cross. Through his death, he revealed the truth about God and in his humanity eradicated selfishness. Thus, he completely destroyed Satan's weapons of lies and selfishness and triumphed over Satan at the cross. Therefore, don't worry about the opinions of those who promote certain rituals, foods, drinks, holy days, or religious festivals as a means of being healed and being reunited with Christ. With God, we know these are merely symbols or metaphors designed to teach us the true truth of God's healing plan, but the actual remedy is found only in Christ. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the creator God who has built his universe to run in harmony with your nature of love. We thank you so much that you sent Christ to win the victory for us, to restore humanity back into harmony with you and your design for life. And now we ask for your spirit to come and remove the distortions, the misunderstandings, the lies, the, the, the deceptions that, that have kept us from seeing more clearly your kingdom and, and restore your character in us. Take all that Christ has achieved, write it on our hearts that we will love you and love others more than self. We pray in your holy name. Amen.